another great week. Um, we are going to today kind of, yes, we're going to go over this Acts 16 and, and 17 that we covered in our homework this week, but we are also going to spend a good bit of time looking at both some of the doctrines that are found within the book of Acts that we need to nail down clearly in our minds and our understanding about God and his his um, salvation plan. Because some of these things, um, as we were kind of talking about before we started class here, some of these are things that we, I don't think we really um, cover enough. And it seems like when, when we do, they're just sort of dropped in and then passed on. And so nobody ever really gets them very clear in their mind that these are points of doctrine that have to be included in an understanding of salvation. And so we're going to try to cover at least one, one quality of the gospel, which is the doctrine of repentance. I want to talk about that this morning because I think that we've skipped that a lot. You know, we go straight for the good stuff, which is eternal glory and relationship with God and so forth. So we're going to talk about repentance and how that needs to be a part of the gospel message. And then we're going to look at evangelism as we did on day five. Did, how many of you did thoroughly your day five's work? so that you actually laid out those passages and made your comparisons. If you didn't, you missed out on a real treat because it was very, very insightful. And what we're going to do is analyze what we looked at on day five and draw evangelism, uh, analytically draw conclusions about what is this saying in principle to us uh, when we share the gospel, okay? So we're going to look at that. And then, of course, we want to go through what we, what we actually saw in chapter 16 and 17 specifically. So let's start then by talking about, let's do this, this middle column first and cover the, the basic points of what we saw in chapter 16 and 17 to kind of lay our foundation down first, okay? So tell me, what did we see in Acts 16? What was going on in chapter 16? Boy, is he ever. Um, and and it, when you titled that particular chapter, what did you end up titling it? Me? Yeah. A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Oh, that's good. There you go. A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Okay, that works. As long as that helps you remember what's in there, that's good. Uh-huh. Uh, I said Paul's second missionary journey to Philippi. Okay, there you go. I did put second missionary journey even as a title to our two chapters, 16 and 17. Now, I don't know if, it compl- if it's completed by the end of 17 or if 18 is going to carry it on yet. I have, we haven't gotten that far, so we'll have to wait to see. But the second missionary journey is very good. And Philippi is definitely key in this, right? Chapter 16, so I'm just going to put on here as a point of a geographical location. At, it's at Philippi. And where is Philippi at? Macedonia, right? And where is Macedonia on a map? It's Greece. That's exactly right. So um, what I loved about it was as I was going through there, I remember um, I went with Kay Arthur on this particular Greek 
study tour. And we would go to, we went from Philippi to Berea to Corinth, down to Athens and so forth and came back. And so as we went through these, she would teach at each of these places. And they're so still like instilled in my brain as great memories. And so for me, as I was reading these, I was going, oh yeah. And that's, that's when I went and pulled out all the photo albums and started going, I remember this and I remember that. And this was so fun. So, um, so Paul's at Philippi in Macedonia, which is Greece, to present-day Greece. And while he's there, tell me the, the significant players who were in this record in chapter 16. There were two primary ones, right? Well, there's Paul and Timothy as those who are the missionaries, and, and Silas is with them, right? And one of the points that she makes, that I can't remember, I think it was day four of the homework, she talks about the pronouns in there, the we and the I and the us and the they. What did you conclude from her bringing that to our attention? Pardon? Yes, isn't that interesting that somehow in there, it almost, it does get the impression, because he's talking about we, he, that sounds to me like the author's including himself, right? Which tells us then that Luke was present himself for some of it, which I thought was pretty cool, that, and I had never really noticed that before, because his name is never put anywhere in the text, but... Oh, he was. So it's, it's a done deal because the movie said so, right? <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I'm glad to have that put to bed. But you know what's really fun is that, is that by her asking that question, did you notice how if she hadn't, we probably wouldn't have even paid any attention to those pronouns, the we, the I, the us, the they, uh, and the switch from we did this and I did that and they did this. And, you know, I just thought that was really very, um, what's the right word? Uh, insightful or attentive. You know, they just paid attention to that little pronoun and how easy it is for us to miss a little point like that sometimes. And it can make kind of a, a profound um, statement or insight that makes us view it just a little bit differently by having paid attention to that. So that was good. Okay, now, so now we know the players on the stage of six, 16. Now, when Paul and Silas were there, who did they affect? What was the effect of this missionary journey? Who are the other people that are mentioned in 16? Lydia. So what happens with Lydia? Yeah, so Lydia is saved, right? So we have Lydia is saved. And what else? Who else gets saved? The jailer. That's right. Now, how does he, the, a jailer get, get saved in this record? What has to happen in order for him to have this encounter with this jailer that was effective? He got thrown in jail. So what we see then, Lydia is saved, and Paul, Paul and Silas are jailed, Right? Right, is jailed, and then the jailer is saved, correct? And a little matter of an earthquake, and so which is okay, which brings up another point again. Um, As we have seen progressively in this book, often 
preceding something where there's a where there's a, a discussion about salvation, what happens? Some kind of a sign, right? So we see again, see another sign. So this supernatural thing occurs, which then allows for circumstances to happen where that then Paul is able to give out the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it wasn't like circumstances prevented us from speaking the word in Asia. Right. Okay, that's a good, that is a very insightful thing. And then if you consider that then... For you and I today, when we are giving out the gospel message, what is that telling us that we should be paying attention to? The, are there times when y- you are just kind of forcing a conversation, and of course it meets with a with a brick wall, right? But have you ever had that encounter where you are carefully listening to the Spirit and maybe you yourself are saying, no, 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 I don't really want to talk to that person, but then you do, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, I'd love to come to church with you. Oh, I've been, I've been interested in that, or I've been, you know, considering that, or I've been, or I've been, all of a sudden they break down and cry because they've got something really burdening them, and it all goes really good when the Holy Spirit is the one directing you, but when it's you directing you, what tends to happen Brick walls, and potentially, if if they had gone ahead and forced them their way into these places where it says the Holy Spirit forbid them to go, potentially there could have been harm to them, right? And the bearing of fruit would it have been successful without the Holy Spirit no. guiding it and being the one behind it? No. no. And I would you say that that may be one of the points that is being taught here, since we're learning about uh, the doctrines of the church, how it functions, and how the Holy Spirit relates to us in the church, right? Because we're learning this brand new thing. So if we're looking at that, then what we can say again is, oh, wow, you know, this is a discipline, obviously, correct? Would you say that with Paul, that there would ever be a time when he really did have to rein himself in? (sighs) Because what was Paul like? I mean, he was really a zealous guy, and he had a lot of knowledge. So he could talk to anybody almost on any subject, as we have seen through the, this particular record so far. That I mean, he could even go and handle those, those, um, those um, philosophers in Greece whose educational level and their thinking is this big and way up here. They did not have Internet for them to Google these two big words, that, right? The, these two, these, uh, what was it, the Stoics and the, what was the other one? Epicureans, right? So we had to go and Google those, I did, in order to read about them to say, well, who are these people, right? But Paul apparently understood them. Uh, in his day and time, he was well-educated enough, which would just, I was impressed by that thought. Well, wasn't he uh, taught by Gamil? Well, he was, and he also did have a great deal of education, which is why I believe God called him to be his tool, because he had had great teaching and learning, and he had been a part of the Pharisees uh, as a Pharisee himself, had been very well educated. Um, But he just seemed to have had a very good command on a lot of subjects, right? For him to be able to go and uh, uh, appropriately handle his conversation then with those philosophers to me was really impressive. Okay, so we see them 
Lydia saved Paul, and Paul is, um, is yeah, Paul and Silas are put in jail, and thereby the result then is the jailer is saved. Along the way, there's that woman whose the spirit was cast out that got him there, right? Yes. It's very interesting. At the same time, they had to cast out the, I guess you can call it the demon, because it didn't sound like it was, it said, what was the word they used? The D word was that she is, she was. Spirit of divination. Yeah. Divination. Yeah. Divination. Divination sounds to me like divine. It is the word divining. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how was she then being possessed by something that was telling Mm -hmm. her, you think, you tell me about her. Well, well, okay, let's open that up. How many, did you all do some research on that spirit of divination? Do you understand what that's talking about? Anybody? What does God say in his word about us having to do with or participating in anything that has to do with uh, divining or divination? Absolutely not. It is an abomination before the Lord, correct? What is the principle behind that? Why doesn't God want us to tap into this kind of world of looking to the future and to knowing what's going ahead or yeah there you go that's the real core of it the real core of it is who are you putting your trust in for your daily living are you trusting in the world system or in this case also demonic system of satan uh, to tell you where it's like it's like reading your horoscope in the newspaper kind of a thing. Don't be into that because why? That's to me that is again an, a an expression that you're not trusting God that God has a plan for your life and that these are the the principle that God has said that you're to walk by faith in obedience to Him. But with those who want to go into uh, divination, they want to know what's going on for the future. Should I do this or should I do that? Well, what should be governing your decision-making? The Word of God God itself. That's right. And that spiritual... When they go into that, they have no control. Well, exactly. And, of course, it it puts that that divine being in which they are tapping into at a high at a higher level above God because you're seeking them rather than God for your guidance. All right. So th- there's that. Now, what was it that Paul was doing when he first goes into this in for, in in um he says let wait a second, let me find it. Verse 4. What is it that brought Paul at this point to where he is? Yeah, did you notice? What is that referring back to? The, the, the chapter before, back in chapter 15. So if you flip your, your observation worksheet open to chapter 15 and go into verse, um, let's see. Where does it say about Here it is, verse 30. The end of verse 30. So when they uh, were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And so it talks about this letter. And what was the letter in verse 28 and 29 that they were delivering to these people? Yeah, telling them that, there were, that basically salvation is what? How does salvation attain? Faith alone, grace alone. But... What did they say it would be good for them to do? Follow the moral system, 
Right. Yeah, so there were like four things. The four had to do with, one had to do with idolatry, one had to do with fornication, which are pre- predominantly Gentile issues, right? And then the other two had to do with blood and, and um, the things which had been strangled, which meant it had not been properly bled out. Now, what do those two rules pertain to? The Jewish system. Now, why did they say it would be well, it would be good for them to, to honor those four points in their life? Okay. To basically, for the sake of love, right, that you might win people to the Lord by not offending them about things which would be overly offensive. And certainly and obviously, we know that idolatry and fornication are just a given that you're not supposed to engage in those. But for a Gentile, it was so common, right, that they felt it necessary to mention it to them. Hey, by the way, don't, don't go back and engage in these things because although you, you, are, you are saved by grace, but what? Don't go and live habitually in these areas of sin which are offensive to both God and man, right? All right, so, so he laid out some principles for them to live in light of because they are in faith, not to get into faith. And the, so for, in chapter 16, then that's what he is actually mentioning. He's saying this is what he was there for. He, Paul's second visit into Derby and Lystra. Do you, back in Acts 14.6, 14, Paul, we see Paul had already been to this place once before, Correct. So you might want to have make yourself a note that this is his second visit into this city, correct? And that then he delivers this decree that these apostles had come to, this letter of saying, please, con- please consider it a good thing to st- abstain from these things. And then while he was there, then what do you think he was doing? If he's showing up at these, oh, these churches where he had been before. Huh? He's preaching. So, so he's come back to strengthen them and encourage them, right? So, of course, there, there is in that also, if you look for it, there's that principle of evangelism that we in our present churches even today need to exercise as well. Whether it be a church that we've established somewhere in the world that we've sent missionaries out to that they need to go back and reaffirm to the people and strengthen them and continue to encourage them. That's a part of the process of a good, strong growth that, that you um, send someone back to check up on things, making sure they're staying online with the, the purity of the gospel. Why might that be something that we need to consider? Yeah. Well, uh, Paul was not just an evangelist. He was a disciple maker. Yeah. True. Right, right. Now, if, if Paul did not go back then to check up on them, what might could happen to those believers? Yeah. Look at us. We're supposed to go to church or should be going to church Sunday or every Sunday or whatever to get, continue to get fed and keep the doctrine. Straight. Right. How many times have we had to, in our group even, go back over and over and over certain points in order to, oh yeah, that's right, we got to get that straight again. 
because we forget, right? It's, it's hard to remember everything all the time. So these people, too, in the same manner, if they had just been brought into faith through Paul's gospel teaching the first time through, for him to go back a second time and to make sure that they hadn't diverted from that purity of the gospel, if they were retaining the standard of sound doctrine, that would be a requirement that we need to consider. Now, it's not, that is true for missions around the world, but it's also true in the lives of individuals because we are a great example of that and I know I'm a great example of that. I can't tell you how often even in preparing for these lessons um, for these classes I go back and remind myself of context and remind myself like I did this week went back and looked at one specific doctrine out of the gospel message and said, now this is what Acts teaches on this one particular point, to remind myself how God views that. Because you can get convinced, I think, sometimes by people who've got a looser interpretation of things or who, because of their... Maybe their personality type or maybe even their spiritual gifting, they tend to be so gracious that they almost violate certain points and saying, well, just be sweet about it. Let that person go. Don't worry about that right now. They'll get it later. No, you need to be a little more clear and a little more declarative on what's expected, correct, in the Christian faith. And it is part of it. And it's, it's back when, um, back I think it was in chapter 3, where the angel let them out of the jail that time and he says now go declare the whole gospel right so we do need to go back and make sure that we're doing this I think that's a good point of reference oh boy did he actually and you know it's really cool because I feel like so much of what we are seeing in here acts relates to almost every single other book in the new testament if you if you're at a loss for where to go find it almost any book relates to acts you can go to any one of them it really is amazing yes all right so all right so we have he's on his second visit to both derby and lystra here at the opening he is delivering those decrees agreed upon by the apostles right? And he's strengthening that existing church which was already established in a prior visit. So in verses 1 to 5 then, what happens there? Okay, he selects Timothy. Now there's an interesting point. We just got through saying it's by grace you are saved through faith and that you don't have to keep the Jewish law in order to be saved. Um, Is that in the equation here that there's a question about his salvation? No. No. So it has nothing to do with salvation, about his personal salvation. He is saved. How clearly does he define Timothy as far as his faith is concerned in this text? When you made your list on Timothy, did he, did you, did he not make it clear that this was a guy who had, had, a, had a very uh, f- uh, what, faithful faith system, right? Spoken of well by the brethren. Had been, um, but then he has him circumcised. So now why does he do this? Okay. One of the things that was interesting is Timothy's background is that he's half Greek- but he's also half what? Jew. And in that day, which, which way does someone go in, as far as their, their lifestyle and, and their traditions? 
between the husband and the wife, who, who tends to be father? Okay, so since the father is the one who gives the lead, and the father was Greek, right? So Timothy had not been circumcised, apparently, right? So he wants to circumcise him because where is Paul taking him, as Craig said? To the Jews and to the synagogues. And as we move into this, do we not see every place that Paul goes, where does he go first? He goes to the synagogues. He goes to the synagogue. So by having Timothy circumcised, what is he doing for Timothy's opportunities to be a witness among those Jews? Yeah, making it more acceptable to those who are going to listen. Those who are, are going to be encountered by Timothy and hear Timothy's message of salvation through Jesus Christ, the, the Christ who's come, the one who's resurrected from the dead, the one who was prophesied of, of ancient days, for him, them to make, to make it palatable and acceptable then to the Jews to hear him and to, for him to have res, be respected by them, then Paul says, be circumcised. I want you to be circumcised so that then you are useful in this, this particular arena of, of salvation to, to the Jews. Because otherwise, the Jews would not have really given him the time of day. It removes an offense. So, is circumcision anything? Does it matter? No, it means nothing except... That Paul, I love there's a verse about Paul, and I've written it down somewhere in here. That Paul says, I have become all things to all men that I might win some. Where is that? Yeah, I did too, and I actually looked it up, and I think I cut and pasted on one of my pages, but I can't remember. Oh, good. Okay, 1 Corinthians 19. 20 to 22. Okay. So in 1 Corinthians 19, Paul says that I have become all things to all men that I might win some. And so that actually is an excellent cross-reference for you to add in right here. Why is Timothy, why does he require Timothy uh, to be circumcised? Not for the sake of Timothy's salvation. Has nothing to do with that. Has to do with Timothy's evangelism usefulness for him to be able to go with him into the work. Mm -hmm. Actually, isn't it? Now, now this is what's cool. Again, this is why I think it's so important for us to be paying attention to what are the doctrines about, quote, church, you know, that we're supposed to be gleaning kind of sublimely through an analytical observation. As we have progressed, we keep seeing different points that, that are being taught to us about um, how what the gospel message is, um, what church discipline is, how you're supposed to handle or, or address issues like disagreements or debates. Uh, what about people who, like, like we're going to bring him up again, Simon, who says he believed but he didn't because Peter just, you know, he just gives him a scathing, scathing report, and then you follow it right on with another one. Everything builds upon one another as you progress this. So here we have had last week the introduction to the idea that he says, no, but you should have, you should, um, you're going to do good if you'll take care of these four things, right? So that you're not offensive to anyone who's Gentile, you're not offensive to anyone that's Jew, because we're building something new, number one, and they're learning to operate underneath this new uh, system, this new religion called Christianity. And so he's laying some principles down that are healthy for us, that are good for us. And some of them are actually forbidden anyway. 
They haven't gotten that far, maybe, in fully teaching it, but they, they let them know right away, no idolatry, no fornication, and then for the sake of the Jew, don't uh, engage in these things which pertain to blood because it would be so offensive that they won't even come to the table. We won't be able to even get an open forum with them to discuss the gospel if you do these things. They will just turn you off and walk away. So for the sake of evangelism, for the sake of winning some, then mind these things. So then the very next chapter, what does he do? Another point. Same thing, circumcision. Does he say how it builds on itself? One thing follows another. And it's really cool how, how I think, how Acts is doing this. And I've never seen these things in Acts bef- before without, you know, really paying attention. Okay. I'm sorry, hold on, let me get this um, written down here. So my title for for the first five uh, verses, as far as a paragraph title, is we see he selects Timothy and he prepares him for ministry by circumcision, right? All right, now say say that again, um, Mary, and I didn't. I think Paul went back after he first gave him the salvation message so that there would be an accountability. Uh, true. Well, absolutely. Accountability and follow-up and exhortation and strengthening and and reaffirming things that they know to make sure they've really got them. And yes, and not only that, but obviously God was sending them. But because when you go back to the uh, chapter f- fifteen, the whole reason they went back to Jerusalem to begin with was to resolve an issue. Yeah of dispute, right? Is it saved by grace or is it saved by, key, by first taking on Judaism as a faith system and then you get to be saved? And the answer was, no, it's purely by grace. And then, and they did a great, I loved it, a great uh, um, apologetics presentation, very systematic of how God had been working with the Gentiles to bring them in, how visions had had been given to him to take them to the Gentiles. So he'd actually been called by God to go there. And I love the fact that he, in there, he talks about, and I had this vision three times. And for a Jewish person, that's really a profound statement because it's a reaffirming that it's God. You know, how many of us have, have actually had that kind of in the back of our head always? Well, if it happens three times, you know, so we always kind of watch for things. Does it happen three times? Because when it happens at least three times, there's this old thinking about, especially from the Jewish perspective, that this is the Lord. Now, I'm not putting any big stock in that, but I'm just saying sometimes I, I say that to myself. Well, that's two. wonder when three is going to hit. <laughs> you know, and it, often it does. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes. It was the reason behind it exactly, and and I really think what's really cool too is just seeing how how they come together and they do debate things and talk it out. 
And everybody gets to lay out basically on the table, this is what I see, oh, well, this is what I see. And in the end, then they can step back and go, you know, I think you're right. Or, oh, no, this is wrong. Paul's right. I mean, but somebody eventually, through a collective whole, they make the decision of what are the doctrinal truths that their church is going to adhere to. This is why so many councils met through the generations. And you hear about these councils Actually, for hundreds of years, they still continue to go on. And they talk about the basic principles of who is the Holy Spirit, what is salvation, you know, who, who is God in relationship to his people, the church. Um, all these things are, are, you know, doctrines. And things like the Nicene Creed, for instance, which a lot of you are familiar with, those are all things that came out of, out of these kinds of councils where they came together and debated sometimes not just for a few days, like in this one, it may have been a day or two of debating, but some of these take hundreds of years before they finally come to a total you know, decision on what it is. But it's exciting to me, and I tell you another thing that for me has been helpful in this right now in my life, there have been some, some controversial things that have been taught that this really affirms, yes, you stand your ground. Yes, you need to speak up. Yes, you need to correct error when error is put out there before you. And if you don't, there's the chance then that the gospel truth is going to be polluted. And if you don't, you have to know what are your doctrines and why do you believe what you believe. And then come together with those who are also learned. Those are also um, instructed carefully in sound doctrines so that when you reason it through, it's not just emotions. Well, I think this, and I don't think that, and it, I don't care. I want to know, what is the doctrinal... Really, I don't care about, about how you feel about it or what your experiences have been, because feelings and experiences can be wrong. What you want to know is, what does God's Word say, and show it to me. So studying the Word of God in the way that we do, by setting context, doing our cross-referencing to make sure the whole counsel of God's Word confirms your conclusions... And when you're done, then you know what you know, and you know why you know it, and, and it's obvious what the answers really are. Um, there are very few things in the Word of God that we walk away with at the end, and we go, well, I'm not really sure what that means. And, and those ones that we do that on are significant to the gospel message. They're not really doc pure doctrine that, that matters. They're little things about, well, why did he do that? You know, where did he go there instead of here? I'm like, well, I don't know, but the Spirit said go here, and so that's what they did, right? Okay, now, so let's go to... Um, and so we see he prepares Timothy for, min for the ministry, and then what does God do? They sends, uh, sends them to where? Macedonia. Macedonia. Okay, so now we're looking at verses, I think it's 6 to 10 next. or Yeah, 6 to 10. That was this. Called to Macedonia, sorry. Okay, now let's go into 11. Verses 11 to 15, what happens there? Lydia's. Lydia's saved. It's really a cool story. I wish we had more time to just kind of land on Lydia and talk a little bit more about her. But Lydia was not from Macedonia, was she? Where was she from? Thyatira, which is really cool because Thyatira is Turkey. 
That's one of the seven churches, if you didn't know that and hadn't figured that part out yet. And I have uh, photos of this in these albums that are up here. Thyatira is one of the places of one of the seven churches that's mentioned. And if you just go back into Revelation and read about Thyatira, it gives you a little bit of background about who Lydia is and what she's coming out of. But the other exciting thing is what? What is Lydia going to be doing when she's done selling her purple wares? Where is she going to be going? Back home to Turkey. And what is she now going to be taking with her? The gospel message again. Now, see, this is so cool. It's like, wow, this is interesting. He goes all the way from from, uh, Jerusalem. He passes through Asia Minor and passes past all these places that he he says the Spirit forbid him to go to. He goes into Macedonia and there he meets a woman from back where he just came from and where the Spirit said, no, you can't go. And now she's going to go back into uh, Turkey and take that gospel message with her when she goes. That's real exciting. Okay, so Lydia is saved. Uh, 16 to 18, what did we see there? What, What is that paragraph about? Yes, yes. So Paul casts out a spirit, right? Now, you could elaborate on how much information you want to put in that title. But ultimately, when he casts out the spirit, what does he do? What, what happens with the men who were the owners of this girl? They are ex- So I'm going to put on here angered. Um, how did I put it? Angered some. I just left it that way because it was enough, I guess, for me to understand. It was her owners that were very angered. Now, why were they angered? They were losing money. There you go. It's all about the bottom line money. Now, what, what I thought was interesting is how they ended up getting her, uh, getting uh, Paul and Silas put into jail. What was their charge when they went to the authorities about this? Yeah. Did, was that really the reason? Were they really concerned about their, citis, their citizens and the city being thrown in confusion? No. So it was really deceptive. They were very manipulative about the way that, that they presented the problem. But what they did is they came around through a back door to make it look like they were really concerned about the city, right? And about the, maybe even their own deities. Um, in order to get them thrown in jail because they were mad about him freeing her of that particular um, uh, uh, possession of that spirit. Okay, so again, what do we see here? The casting out of a spirit is, again, what? This is my symbol for signs, and I always color my signs in. It's like a big stop sign, okay? So here we have, again, a sign, right? And the sign then precedes the next, the next uh, event, which is seen in verses um, 19 to 24. What happens? Yeah, Paul and Silas are taken to jail, right? And it, what kind of... Um, was this a just treatment on their part? No. These people took them, arrested them, did not give them any kind of opportunity to speak, no, a failure to give them representation, right? 
they beat them with rods and then threw them in jail. And, and what, how do you think these jailers felt about this once they probably figured out what was going on? How do we know that? What do these guys do at the end of this? Yeah, they th- I really, it doesn't tell us why they sent word to release Paul and Silas after the event. But what we know is something happened or they heard something or they learned something. Probably, my guess is, they figured out that, that, they, had, that they had really blown it by, by unjustly treating these men. And somewhere in there, they got, probably got scared that they were going to get in trouble for doing some unjust things. That's right. Not without Jew justice. Right. There had to be, uh, they had to have representation and they had an opportunity to defend themselves and they had not been given any of those things. They just arrested them and started beating them immediately. They didn't even discuss it with them. They had no idea that he was even a Roman. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't mention it. Would, would you not be speaking if I'd be going, ah, 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 wait a minute here, guys, don't you touch me, I'm a Roman. Yeah, exactly. I think I'd have been whipping out that, that get-out-of-jail-free card myself. But maybe the spirit told him to be quiet. Maybe. It doesn't tell us. But, but yet, you, you do wonder about why Paul did not. I know, did you read some of your commentaries on that? What, did, what were some of the speculations out there? They, would, they really did kind of dance around saying they just didn't know why. I mean, the crowd is what instigated it, so there's a riot. So they may have been shouted down even. Yeah. And, you know, the Could be. just took their robes off, but the crowd got them. Yeah, and yeah. And had them beat. So yep, it's, yep. It's a riot. And yep. But it was the magistrates who were in charge that permitted this rod beating. And actually, in, actually... Um, ordered it so we know that they were guilty and they knew they were guilty by the next day if they had thought it through it all that's when I think they started going hmm I wonder if we just messed up here really big so they went to say let's let him go free okay so we're going to say that he's taken to jail and I'm going to put on here unjustly because I do think that's a significant point in this particular record that Paul was taken unjustly. He and Silas were taken unjustly into jail. Now, what's cool about that then is what follows, right? Is right after that, then in 25 to 34, what happens? Yeah. So they start. So Paul, once he is. In this really bad situation, of course, I'm sure neither one of them are feeling really good at the moment because their bodies have been beaten. Um, but they're in jail. They're, they're praising God. They're singing. And who's hearing them? The jailer. The jailer and all the other prisoners, right? And then what happens? An earthquake. Again, so we have an earthquake. Now, that's quite a timely little earthquake, wouldn't you say? <laughs> so what would you call this? <laughs> Another sign, right? Because we have this earthquake, and not only the earthquake, what happens to all their chains? All of them, really, and it's like, and it says all of them. Not just one or two because of the earthquake, but... All of them. That, to me, is such a supernatural sign. And so, again, we have a precursor 
to a, a, an opportunity of, of witnessing with a sign. And again, signs do what for those who are going to be witnessed to? Encourage. Encourage them, okay. Who does it affirm to them that that's what is going on for them? I mean, when you see something supernatural going on, how often have we talked? I, mean, I know, Celeste, you and I have talked about it on many occasions where it's like, oh, it just had to be the Lord because this and this and this, and you just know that could have never happened unless God was in it because those things should have never all come together at one time, right? How many of you guys have had those conversations before where you just know it's the Lord? Well, here we have one of those times. We had, we had, they should have never been in jail because it was unjust, right. but they did end up in jail, right? All, all because they had uh, per, uh, performed or committed this... this um, Casting out of the demon from this woman, right? So they end up in jail unjustly, however, and now they've got this earthquake, again, a precursor to this, this opportunity to give the world. Yeah, so there's an earthquake equals opportunity. I like that. And the result is what? The jailer and his household what? They're saved. Now, why did they, why was this jailer so impressed? Was it because of the singing and the praising of Jesus through the songs? Isn't that amazing? So Paul, somehow, he and Silas had enough restraint. I, I don't know about you, but if, if, my, if I had been unjustly thrown in there, I'd have been running. Yeah, I'd be going opportunity and out the door I'd be, right? But Paul, for some reason, and it has to be the Holy Spirit impressing upon him again, or as, as we've seen earlier where God gave him a vision and impressed upon him where to go, again, here we see that obviously the Lord said, no, just hang tight right? So he does stay and he waits. Now, if he had left, what would have been the the outcome? Instead of the jailer being saved, what would have happened? He would have died. And consider this on an eternal perspective. He would have died what? Unsaved in his sin. And so, wow, this was really, I don't, I mean, I'm trying to not read too much into this, but this seems to me like a a real place where you see love of a fellow person for the sake of their eternal salvation, thinking that maybe this man, surely he would have been, he would have either killed himself or been killed because, you know, the rulers would have been very upset with him for having let them uh, escape. And they would have never bitten off on this supernatural sign that happened, how they all get unleashed, right? That's just not possible. They wouldn't have even believed it, no matter what the jailer told them. So he would have died, and he would have died in his sin. So Paul and Silas staying is, is quite a profound thing. And, I, and there is, I wish we had more time to really go into it, but, you know, I think that, again, this is one of those times where, obviously, he was listening to that quiet, still voice of the Lord guiding him on what to do in this situation, where previously when jail doors had been supernaturally open, what did Paul or Peter? They walked out. The angels would come and they would escort them or they would tell them go. And so there was opportunity. When there was opportunity previously, he would escape. But in this case, he didn't escape. 
So again, there's a contrasting picture here of when do you run for safety and when do you stay for the sake of the gospel. Well, I think it's also a message of God says love your enemies. Yes, very much so. Love your enemies and understand the eternal picture of this. It isn't just a momentary act of you escaping and then this man dying in his sin. In this case, it was a man who actually was able and was willing to come into faith because when he saw not the supernatural sign of the earthquake and the um, the the shackles being le- loosed, that's not what convinced him. The woman having a spirit of divination cast out of her, that did not convert that jailer, right? He, he heard of and saw both of those supernatural things happen, but neither of those were really what, uh, what affected him. What did affect him? They stayed. And because they stayed, then Paul are, and Silas were able to give them the, the message of the gospel. And the other prisoners stayed too. So yes. It doesn't say. I mean, who knows? I wish we'd have had more on that story. When we get to heaven, we can talk to Paul about that. Say, okay, Paul, how did you convince those <laughs> other guys not to run? Well, there had to have been something. Because it did say they were all released. Yes. I think all. And I think that was part of the supernaturalness of it. If one or two people had their chains had been loosed, that would possibly happen with an earthquake. If they were in the right location and the right thing happened, it could, it could have happened potentially. But for all of them, that's, that's when you know the Lord did that. And, so, and I think that maybe that's what convinced them to stay. They thought, man, this is supernatural. Something miraculous is going on. Plus, by this point, they had heard why these men were in jail, which was casting out of a demon, which again is another supernatural sign, and therefore God is in it. And so they're convinced maybe they're staying to watch, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's me. <laughs> yes. Yes. And later Paul writes um, in epistles that he talks about he's learned to be, like uh, Philippians, learn to be content in whatever circumstance. Yes, and thankful. And so he praised God when he was in want and or in need, whether he was being beaten and imprisoned or whether he was, you know, out freely walking the streets and proclaiming the gospel. Um, he learned to be content wherever God placed him because what does that tell you about Paul's life attitude? The word that comes to my mind is humility. Okay. Paul just has great humility, like supernaturally. And I think that that's what the jailer was seeing or everybody was kind of seeing that, oh, this guy's do you think that supernatural humility is something that we, we as believers, all of us, should have? And actually, yes, that was probably where I was kind of going there, James, because should we, yes, can we, yes. And I tell you what, the empowerment is already there because when you come into faith, the Holy Spirit enters you. And then what I love is he says that he, he, he places the Spirit within you and he causes you to walk in your precepts and his ways. Now, are there times when we don't? When we are on it? So what does is, what is the scripture call that? Rebellion. Rebellion, yeah. 
Uh, there's there's a word. It's called something the 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 spirit uh, to quench the spirit, right? The quenching of the spirit and recognizing maybe that the Lord is speaking to you in that small still voice, and yet resisting it because you've got your own agenda, or you're just not tapped in at the time because you're so busy quote living life, right? Uh, and so, I mean, there's some, a lot of little subtleties in here that we can pick up on and really elaborate on in our minds and in our meditation time with the Lord. So I hope that you're going to have a chance to do that. Heinz. I think we all receive something, uh, and I don't think maybe, maybe we've seen it as Peter too, is that intense sense of serving the Lord. Yes. I tell you what, you've got to remember his conversion. If that was not a profound conversion, too, he saw the Lord face to face on the road to Damascus, and the Lord and the Lord um, blinded him for three days and took him through this process so that he would be under uh, in a place of fully understanding that God has saved you and God has called you and God has designed a specific plan for you, and he was fully on board with it. it, it and I don't think I ever see Paul ever really resisting against the Lord, do we? I'm your instrument, do, for, do with me as you choose. So, yeah, I want to be like that. I want to always be, you know, have my mind in a prepared state. Now, what do you think in Paul's life has prepared him to be able to consistently do that through his life? Besides the coming in of the Holy Spirit, which we, we get at salvation, we all get it. But what makes him so profoundly on board with God all the time? Yeah, well, so you think it's all from him, from himself, that it's through his, okay. I'm just talking about what do you think are the disciplines? Because don't you and I want to do what Paul did? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd like to tap into that. I would like to be like Paul, so committed to Jesus Christ that I'm willing to go into a jail and receive a beating and stay there when the jail doors fall open for me. He's zealous. No matter what he does, he's zealous. You see it in the beginning of his life when he was persecuting Christians for his faith. That's right. see it now. Okay, so part of it is temperament then is what you're saying. Okay. But I think, do you think a person who has a less zealous personality could also... Okay, so what? If you want to be like Paul and follow that example, which we all do, what do you think helps him or has helped him? He knows everything. I mean, he knows, he knew the doctrines and the law and everything. So when he was convinced when he saw that they came together perfectly, I think that's it because he was so into the legalism that when he saw it and then he started preaching it to these other people going, hey, look, it all fits. Okay. I think it just added on to his knowing that this was supposed to happen. So part of it then was the disciplines of knowing the gospel truth and seeing it affirmed and affirmed and affirmed. Okay, that's good. Pardon? Okay, so he was literally alert to it and, and... seeking opportunities. So there was a willingness in his spirit to seek that opportunity. That's good. Um, I think the other part you see throughout uh, Paul's life after his conversion that his urgency to get the message to others. Remember one thing is that for his Jewish brothers he would die. Yes. They would just get the message. Mm-hmm. So I think that was really the overall drive 
Okay. Okay, so it seems like he had a very, very much an eternal perspective on this present life. He counted this, per, this present life as loss for the sake of the gospel because he, had a, he really did have his mind on looking at the world and seeing the mess and all the problems. And all, you know, I, I saw a post online last night, I think it was my daughter had posted something. And they were talking, they were making mention of all these current events with the court justices making these rulings and so forth, and how horrible so many Christians have been verbally and through actions, really, against just because they're mad about what's going on in our world, which I'm mad about it too, right? But my comment on her page was, I really think what helps people keep that anger and frustration under control and, and keep perspective on things is having an eternal perspective, knowing that, yeah, we may have lost a battle, but we will win the war. Right. Okay? So Paul, in his life, I think is very similar. He sees that as he's going along, sometimes he gets beaten and thrown in jail unjustly. But then he sees God winning the war because guess what? He, all of a sudden he finds himself in a circumstances where he's able to do what? Save a, not just a jailer, but who else? His whole household. They're all so profoundly impressed by Paul's concern for them, for them, particularly for this jailer who would have otherwise, A, died in his sin, but also simply just died. Even if you're looking at it from a humanistic level, he would have died. And Paul's love for him, yeah, and the family saw this. That's true, because he, he would have been basically defamed or... Oh, yeah, it sure was. There weren't nearly as many fallbacks. That's exactly right. So, so what we see then is we see this jailer and his household then is saved all through what Paul did. And the, 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 the lessons that we can draw out of this is we just analyze all the scenario. If we really get your mind into it and kind of put yourself into that, then what you can start to do is say, you know, do I do that? I, the, uh, one thing that was not really mentioned that I think is significant, not, and we're going to see it more as we move into the next uh, section, but we saw it even in the open of this. When they were going into the city, and they were, it was the Sabbath day on, in verse 13 of Acts 16, where were they headed for a place of prayer. Verse 16, what was going on? They were again on, on a way to a place of prayer. What about in 25 when they were in jail? A, a, a place of prayer. They were praying and, and singing praises to God. So do you see Paul also staying very closely in, in connection with God the Father through prayer and worship? So if you want to be an effective evangelist, if you want to be a successful life liver, you know, and do it in a way that really does glorify God, you have to stay connected through prayer and worship. And so it's not just what he knew, and it wasn't just his own personality, and it wasn't just his determination, although all those things factored in as well. Um, opportunities that God was giving him, but, but really I think the foundation of all of it is where we keep seeing in his heart, where does he always keep running back to? Prayer and worship. Prayer and worship, being in the Word of God, and being willing to stand and hold tight to the Word of God and to retain the standard of sound doctrine. He didn't care that he was going up against 
some of his fellow brethren. And he didn't care if they hated his guts when he was saying, you're wrong and I'm right. He said, look, we got to resolve this. And he said, let's take it to the council, to Jerusalem. And they had, that's what they did. He was a man who stood you know, in God's court on what God had, had established. And he was willing to uh, protect it, to keep it pure, and also to live it. And he did that through this, this real close relationship that he had with the Lord. Yes, he sure did. Actually, in 2 Timothy, that's exactly what he says. Retain the standard of sound doctrine is exactly what he says. Right, and don't let anybody look down on you because you were young, right? I remember teaching that when I was a Sunday school teacher to my little first and second graders, and we had some sign motions that went with it, and I can't remember all of them now, but it was really cute. But that was it. Don't, just because you're young, don't let other people look down upon you. If you have faith in God, you need to, to retain that standard of knowledge of God's word and what's true, and don't let other people belittle you because of your biological age, right? Well, he also knew before that he was so zealous for Mm-hmm. All right, so now in, so we see the jailer and his household have been saved then. In 35 to 40, then what does Paul do? Now, this part is a hoot. Paul has opportunity to walk away now. The jailers have sent, the, these people who had thrown him in jail unjustly have sent word and said, let him go. Just let him go. Send him out, right? And Paul says, uh, nope, I'm staying right here. <laughs> He's like, no, I'm not going to go in peace. I wasn't brought in here in peace, and I wasn't brought in here justly. Now, why do you think Paul does what he does? Why is he making a scene about it instead of just quietly leaving? Okay, so he's he's just committed to okay, but why? But why stay? Why make a stink on this issue? Okay, he's teaching other people. Very good. That's part of it. You're almost there. I think it was an opportunity because obviously the jailer's family came. He hasn't left the jail, and the family has come, and they have believed. So I think the word must have been spreading, and people must have been coming to where they were. And maybe that's why the magistrate said, okay, just get That could be, you're, that's a possibility, Brenda. That could be part of the motivation behind it because they're realizing a lot of people now are recognizing that these magistrates blew it big time, that they overstepped their authority yeah. and actually violated things. And then eventually they find out that he actually was also Roman, which really also causes problem. But, but what, think it through a little bit harder. Okay, maybe maybe a little bit of an opportunity to uh, to also witness again. Maybe, although it's a pretty tough witness when you're sticking your finger in the eye of the person who falsely did something. You're humiliating them. Is what you're going to do, right? This is, this is, this is now, this is, this is really 
Okay, say that again. Say that again. Well, they just witnessed to all these people that are going to be converted are converted, and so they're going to be living in this city, and they're going to be adding to the number. Okay. So, what is this? All right. Now, now she's got it. She's close. Okay. So, so get. So that's you. You did good, Celeste. Very nice. So, yeah. So what you what you're seeing here then is his bright Paul's bravery and his willingness to at that moment stand up against the, against these these rulers, right? Who had unjustly arrested him. Now, if he if it had been Worthy of, uh, if he had actually broken a law, I doubt that this would have been, he'd have been scooting out of there, right? But because he was innocent, and then in order, then what? For the sake of who? For the sake of other believers that in that city where he was eventually going to be leaving, they're going to be left behind. Who's going to still be over them? All those same rulers. And so what he's doing is he's laying an opportunity then to, to hopefully ensure that this kind of uh, false uh, um, persecution will come upon those people again. So for the sake of those who follow after him, he's really laying down a foundation and saying, look, number one, Christians don't have to just be a doormat. Just because we're, uh, you know, of a faith of love and of of kindness does not mean that we have to be run over, right? And if it's unjustice, then it's unjustice and we need to stand up. And by him standing up and making this magistrates, number one, publicly confess that they, they had really made a mistake on his part and that they had acted unjustly, well, hopefully, because it's a public humiliation, they're going to be a lot more careful about in the future, making sure that if they're going to arrest, quote, a Christian, that Christian needs to have really actually done a dirty deed that's worthy of it, right? So he's really helping the people who are following and being left behind, right? Paul's a just or a believer in just laws. I mean, he Boy, is he. By God. Yeah. I mean, even in Rome. Yes, exactly right. Right. And do not be caught doing what's wrong, right? Exactly. Right. Well, he was so legalistic. I totally relate to him. You can ask Celeste. I am just a law keeper and a law, you know, for me when I see, it's not that I don't break things sometimes. I, I'm just as guilty as the next person, but, but I'm pretty legalistic. <laughs> Celeste's going, I am rigid. <laughs> I am, because, but I, it's just the way God created who I am. And I'm like Paul. It's like, well, these are the rules. You know, we got to keep the rules. Don't bend the rules. Let's keep the rules. Well, and part of it has to do with, you know, the spiritual gifting that God has given me so that I can properly teach them by honing in my mind where are the, where are the lines, where are the clear limits of things. And that helps me be a better teacher of those things too. So, but then that tends to flow over into where do you park your car? <laughs> no, you can't park there because that's for handicap. <laughs> But it's midnight and the parking lot's empty. I don't care. <laughs> You're not supposed to park here. And then she wants to get out of the car and leave me sitting in that car. <laughs> I went, no. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. So 35 to 40, then Paul stands up against unjust uh, treatment, right?
Okay, so that's the that is the first one, and his and his bravery is for the sake of is for the sake of those uh, who follow him, right, or who are left behind, who are left behind in in that city, because they're going to have to. They are going to have to stand up against, oh, Margaret, welcome back. We're so happy to see you. Oh, are you kidding? Not, not with me. I tell you, that's awesome. I'm so happy to see you here. All right, and you got my text messages? Oh, good. Okay, good. Well, we've been thinking about you. All right. Um, okay, let's move into Acts 17. We're getting, a, we're, we're not getting... A, as far along as I had hoped, but maybe we'll get through it all yet. So we're ready for 17. Let's see. Um, 17 is more of this second missionary journey, correct? Still in Macedonia. What are the cities that he ends up preaching in? I'm going to put it over here. He starts out, uh, so I'm going to put it on here. Paul preaches, right? This is a very generic title, but Paul preaches, and then he, he starts at Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica, and where else? Then he goes to where? Berea, and finally to Athens. Okay, so that's how I titled it, because... Rather than going into all the details of each of the events, which you could have done. Instead, what I did is I gave it kind of a, a, and you could just say, at Macedonia. Continuing at Macedonia and not even list all that. Uh, What that might do for you would be to keep it closely connected with what you see back here where he's in Macedonia. And so now you see again that this is still part of the same time frame and the same journey, correct? So it might give you some cohesiveness too, as far as just titling for your Bible to see that he's still in Macedonia. This is still the second missionary journey. He's kind of still in the same uh, general area geographically. But he's moved cities, correct? So Paul preaches in these places. And what we see then in verses 1 to 9 is what? Yeah, he has such a warm welcome in Thessalonia. I mean, those people just loved him. They all said, please tell us more, right? No, (laughs) like the opposite is happening. So when he's done with it, in the end, what is the response of the people from uh, the Thessalonians? What is their response to him? What are some of the adjectives used to describe them? Jealousy. So first of all, what you see is one of the motives behind their rejection of what's going on with it is that, first of all, there's jealousy, right? What does that mean about jealousy? What do you think they're jealous about? His faith. So what has the faith got to do with it? See, where's that word? Okay, but the Jews becoming jealous because what had he done? What's verse 4? before it say they that Paul had persuaded them to join who Paul and Silas where where had they been previous to that joining of Paul and Silas 
underneath the Jewish system, right? So these would be apparently Jews who had some kind of leadership position in this city, right? Right? Are you catching it? So the but tells you that there's a contrast between where they were positionally under an authority of the Jews to now them being positionally underneath the authority of the apostles. And they were jealous because they were losing their parishioners. Are you getting it? Okay, so there's this jealousy that's at the root of it. And then basically also, were they believing Paul's message? No. No. So those are the two issues that you see going on in this first city, which is uh, Thessalonica, is jealousy and unbelief of the Thessalonians. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> which was which interesting it's, it's almost like they took a partial truth to to some degree they are they preaching another king yes. of course yes but is it a king which is going to disrupt the system on earth at this moment no, not really. Well, other than it's going to take them out of Judaism, which is where they really were stepping on their toes. Because the more parishioners they had, the more powerful they are, right? In the eyes of the people. It was a lot like what happened with Simon the Magician, where he had had a following previously, right? By all the peoples who were enthralled and amazed at, at the, the magical things that he was performing. And then when the people basically, um, uh, what is the right word? They, they left, they defected from being enthralled with him. And then they heard the message of the gospel that Peter was preaching and began to follow that. And they were being baptized into that, which means he lost his audience, right? So it's kind of the same thing, this jealousy that sets in that motivates them in their response. Now, Simon's response was kind of interesting because on Simon's part, what does he do? He, he says, if you can't beat him, what? Join him, right? And then he tries to buy this power in order to gain back some more of, of authority over these people by doing, again, something supernatural and spectacular. He wanted a position where he was exalted in their eyes. He was trying to figure a way to gain that back, right? We, we've talked to, in previous studies a little bit about Judas kind of he you know why was Judas among the 12 and one of the things that he was in charge of was what that money purse why was he there well uh, it had a lot to do with power and position and, and money apparently that was driving him and at some point along the line, then Jesus at the, in the upper room, he calls him on that and he, and he identifies him as a son of the devil and he tells him to go and do what he's going to do. Well, Simon gets called on it by Peter, same way. Peter says, look, you're the son of the devil. And uh, here we see these are kind of the same thing going on. It's the same kind of reaction where the, these men are jealous because they're losing their audience, they're losing their power, and they're in a pos- and their money, all the things that are going to go with them as they leave and vacate Judaism into this new thing called the way, right? Christianity. So, yes. It looks like there's a break, though, between verse 4 and 5 because he was in the temple teaching, and they were 
Yes. Yes. Absolutely, he was. And that's why in verse 5, the but is so important. But the Jews, what Jews? The masses of those other leaders were, be, were jealous because he was having success. Yes, he had been there for a period of time and he was, he was growing an audience. And as he little by little was taking, it'd be, it'd be like, you know, if you had a, a Bible study group or, a, or whatever, a quilting group, and all of a sudden you come in and someone starts taking them away from you because they're, for some reason, more charismatic, right? And, and pretty soon your group is down to this big and you're looking over there and all the people seem to be congregating over there underneath that new person. It's jealousy. So yeah, the word but there is a contrast of Paul and what was happening in the effect of his ministry of preaching, which was leading some into faith, and they didn't like it. And he says, but they were jealous. Uh huh. Yes, up in verse uh, three um, and four, some of them were persuaded and joined Silas. Absolutely, and and a large number of God-fearing Greeks. So some of the Jews and a large number of the Greeks were were coming into faith, and they didn't like it because his their power and and authority. And the message that they were bringing was drawing crowds, and they were jealous of that. Yeah, but yes, it was growing. But the contrast is, how much opposition was there? In, in verse 5, well, they became jealous, right? And, in order, and then what did they do? Yeah, and they formed a mob, I mean, there were enough people on the other side of things on this carol that they, they formed a mob, and the mob literally chases Paul what, where? Out of town. He has to leave because it's so, because it's so aggressive. So in verses, um, t- pardon? In 10 to 16, where does he end up? Into, into Berea. So he has to leave Thessalonians, the, Thess- the, the Thessalonian community, because they have, because those leaders of the Jewish side of, of religion, they had formed a mob. I mean, can you imagine a Christian doing that? Forming a mob against somebody else just because they're drawing people out of our faith? I mean, not that we wouldn't be concerned about people being drawn out of our faith. We would want to win them back, but would we do it by a mob? By aggressively attacking them? As a matter of fact, later on, we would, Heinz? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's such a good Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, forget it, Heinz. We're going to pretend we didn't even hear that. Okay, one to nine is their jealousy and unbelief. So then in the end, we see then in verses 10 to 16, we see that he's moved on to Berea. Now, what's the response in, in Berea? That's right. I love this. The belief of noble-minded Bereans. There's a, there's a, now, it doesn't mean everyone in Berea got saved, but there was a, more, um, a higher measure of, mobile, of, of noble-mindedness about them. What made them noble? What were they doing? Yeah, so they actually listened to hear what was being said. 
Yes. So they were hearing it, they were receiving it, but then they were just blindly falling into it either. They were, then they were saying, okay, now let's go back and examine this to see if what is being taught to us is true. What does that tell you and I about our present faith walk and the things that we are learned? When we're even learning them here in this classroom, what should we be doing? Examining to see whether or not they are true. And it either is true or it is not true. And you will very quickly, by two things, know for sure. Number one, the Holy Spirit is going to protect you. That is the work and the job of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so if you are pressing hard into Holy Spirit, if you are relying heavily upon God and His Spirit to, to keep you from being led astray. God will do that. He has promised to do that. He will lead you into all truth. Secondly, you need to go to the source of all truth, which is his written word, not to what other people think, not to commentaries, not to your best friend, even if your best friend is great. But you go first to the word of God. Then what you do is you take that word and you go and you sit down with another person who you know studies well. And they're not persuaded by emotions but they have studied it well and you can talk it out and discern it together and then come to a good conclusion on things right but make sure the person that you're confiding in this is something I remember I was taught really early in my spiritual walk when I was discipled as a young woman was make sure that the people you go to for spiritual counsel are not just your friends but that they are people who are mature in the word of God and that they won't pull punches that they won't just tell you what you want to hear, right? So the people of Berea were those kind of people. They were of more noble-mindedness because they listened to what was said with eagerness because they wanted to hear from God. And then they went back to the Word of God and examined it to see if it was true or not. One of my... um, My my first trainer who trained me to be a precept teacher... um, she wrote a, on a card and sent it to me years later, but she called me a true Berean. And I've always remembered that. And I thought that was probably one of the biggest compliments I've ever had. It was just really a sweet thing from a woman that had watched over me through the years as I've been teaching. And I would keep in, in touch with her and send her Christmas cards and tell her what I was doing and what was going on. And I've kind of stopped doing that now, but in recent years. But early on, I did. And she, one year for Christmas, sent me a card that had. I think I still have it in my Bible, but it was a good, a good word. So uh, jealousy and unbelief of those Thessalonians, and that's in contrast then to the belief of noble-minded Bereans. Okay. All right, and then 17 to... Uh, Boy, this is weird. My numbering is off on my call. Thank. Okay, that's what it is. It's backwards. <laughs> I did, my dyslexia did it again. I got 17 to 15. I'm going, this isn't... <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's 15 to 17. But it should be 16. Yeah. Okay. 16. Uh, yeah, it could go all the way to the next one, but what I did like, a 16 starts a whole new teaching. Where is he in 16? He's going to be in Athens. But what, where, what happens in 17 to, um, or 16 and 17? He's, he's arrived in Athens, right? And what does he see around him going on? 
the idol worship and what happens within his spirit. He's provoked, isn't he? There's an anger that's provoked in him. What kind of anger is it? It's a righteous anger, obviously. He doesn't say that, but that's what we conclude because what he's angry about is what? All those idolatry worshipers that were in that city, so much idol worship everywhere. And interestingly, if you, come, if you come and look through my book, when you get to Athens, Greece, and you look at this city, and one of the things that the, you all know what the Parthenon is, right? You've seen photos of it. What, what's at the top of that Parthenon? Yeah, temple after temple after temple after temple. And when you stand up on the top of the hill here where Mars Hill is and you look down into the Agora, all over in that, along every walking path, are idol worship stations all everywhere. There's idols to, it's kind of like Ephesus was too in Turkey. Idol worship everywhere. So he is, Paul's spirit is provoked by this idol worship. It just shows us Paul's heart and it shows Paul's motivation behind what is about to take place in these next verses. So Paul's um, spirit is provoked by idolatry of Athens. That's a long title, huh? All right, (laughs) of those at Athens. Interesting, we didn't mention up here in verses 10 to 15 where it talks about the belief of those noble-minded Bereans. But how does he end up in Athens down here? Yeah, the Thessalonians followed him and chased him off because these Bereans were actually accepting what he had to say, and they would have been fine with him staying there for a longer period of time, right? But they followed him. They came to Berea because they found out he was teaching them in Berea, and they were still so obsessed with this teaching not eventually following on them because how close are these cities together, by the way? They're very close. They're, they're like 30 miles apart or so. And so they followed Paul uh, to uh, Berea and chased him off. That's kind of how that all happened. Otherwise, he would still probably be in Berea. Berea is beautiful, by the way. There's a wall that we sat at for our teaching there that it was um, maybe not the whole size of this end of the room, but very large like that. And the whole thing is mosaic stones, and it's kind of a uh, oval, half oval shape on it. And it has this mosaic of Paul and all those things, and we all sat at that mosaic wall while uh, Kay taught us about the Bereans, and she taught right out of these scriptures. It was so cool. Okay, Paul's spirit provoked by idolatry of the, of the Athenians, or of Athens itself. So in uh, 22 then, or let's see, let's... I've got my numbering on this so messed up. So tell me what my... I'm at 18 to... Probably 31. Let's go. Let's do that. I'm going to have to fix my notes when I get home. Okay, so what do we see um, Paul do there? In those verses, 22 to 31, what's the whole subject matter about? Okay, and he's preaching, right? So he's preaching to them. 
Okay, so he's preaching to the Gentiles. And what is he preaching to them in contrast to, how does he open his preaching up? What is the process in that? He says, I can see that you guys are very religious people. Very cool. Now, this is cool because it's at this point, starting right here with this preaching, that we're supposed to examine kind of the technique, you know, the skills of, of how... Uh, presenting the gospel is effective or can be effective. And then she took us back on day five to go back and look at every other uh, preaching and how they kind of followed a similar pattern, right? Yeah, okay. Verse 18 says he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they brought him up to the, um, you know, wherever that was. Yes. And, and then they asked him about it. And that's when he said, started teaching about the unknown God. That's right. Okay. Okay, exactly. So it speaks about the unknown God. So this is what I saw as far as uh, one of the things that he does, one of his techniques is he, he locates or finds something known to them, something understood by them, which to them is an unknown God, right? And then he contrasts that or jumps off of that to say, well, what you, that you, what you worship that's unknown, let me tell you about what, what I know about a true God. Right? So he uses that platform of something that they understand, something that they won't object to, something that's familiar, something that they identify and understand. And from that, then he springboards off of it to teach about the known God. Right? So he's preaching his known God. That's how I titled it. I don't know what you, how you want to do it. You just say that he preaches to them. That would work. But he's preaching it, and who he's preaching it to is to those Athenian the philosophers, right? I tell you, what did you guys find out about these philosophers when you did your research on them? Who are these people? In a way, they've become opposite sects. The Stoics and the, so the Epic- Epicureans Epic- were like all about pleasure. Okay. Pleasure, but pleasure through minimal something. It was the like... The Stoics were the ones, I think they were very minimalistic. Uh-huh. And then the Epicureans, I think, were more... But their, their pleasure was not the idea of, or, of uh, overt orgy type things. It was more, though, through discipline and peaceful and, yeah, modest living. Yeah, I know. It's really... Co- I got a little bit confused on this. Did, what, did, go ahead. That's exactly... That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Okay. So one lives in denial about truths around them, and actually, those Stoics are the ones who go into the mind and the spirit, the spirit and the matter things being separate. They're almost Gnostic, is where they their religion goes into that, which is First uh, John's teaching against Gnosticism that they had to believe that Jesus came in flesh, but they didn't. The Stoics did not really unite the, that all things which are of God are good and they are spirit, and therefore, since that's true, then God, Jesus, God, could not have come in flesh because that puts flesh on that which is perfectly 
pure and holy, and those two cannot mix in their thinking. So the Stoic, which leads into Gnosticism eventually, is kind of that belief system, separation of matter and spirit and so forth. But the other group is is more about the um, magicalness. It's, it's, uh, I would call it New Age. It's about all things are are. Uh, God and all things eventually go back into being God. So the earth is God, the trees are God, the flowers are God, everything is God. Um, yes. Looking at the definition, Epicureanism, philosophical system of doctrine, Epicurus holding that the external world is a series of fortuitous combinations of higher pleasure. The highest form is pleasure, interpreted as freedom from disturbance or pain. Yes. And so they deny that. Now, Celeste, go ahead. I can see you grinning. <laughs> they're free from pain. They're free from disease. They're free from... So who do, what religion may that seem to reflect today? I have a friend who's a Christian scientist, and they try that. So Christian scientists has taken on some of that philosophical teaching, and it has formed that particular religion, that, that sect of faith. And it's very interesting how... Their approach to it is intellectual, and they really do think they're above you in your understanding. They've, they think they've risen higher than you. And one of the things, the Gnostics on the Stoic side are the same way, but on both parties, they think they've risen to a level of knowledge that's above you. There's a passage in um, 2 Timothy that just came to my mind I want to show you as an example, though, that'll make it more practical when you're looking in Scripture. Second uh, Timothy chapter two. If we ever do Second Timothy, you'll enjoy this because we're going to look more at Gnosticism, which is the Stoic side of things. Um, where does it say? Was it Second Timothy or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I realize where I made my mistake. It's First John, not Timothy. Okay, First John, chapter 2. Here it talks about, again, Gnostics who think they're above you intelligently and that they've risen to a level that you can't comprehend because it's mystical and only certain people get it. Right? And so First John is refuting this kind of teaching, and he's going to say, no, 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 no. Everybody who knows God gets it. You don't get to write, not just some, you know, what if I just stood in here and said to you, well, I have arrived, and I, you poor things, you know, one day maybe you'll get smart enough, and you'll get spiritual enough that you'll rise up to this place where you get enlightened, And that's what this kind of teaching is about. It's enlightenment versus true knowledge. And so what John, first John is written about is to refute that. So it's a contrast to it. So he says, um, uh, I am writing to you little children, meaning the common parishioners, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. So he's affirming that that is a truth. I am writing to you fathers because you do know him who has been from the beginning. I am also writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. So now he's, he's jumping to all the different age levels and, and groups that would be broken down. And in the mind of a stoic or the mind even of, a, of a, the uh, 
what was the other group? The Epicureans. They had this idea that they're smarter and that they've risen above and that not everybody gets to that level. So they would go to these platforms like they're doing here in, Eph- in Ephesus or in um, Athens and they're arguing or debating and, and they do it in a lot of ways to puff themselves up because they're so much smarter. And, so when, and you see that when they address um, Paul in here and basically call him small-minded. What does this guy have to say? Let's see what this guy who knows nothing has to say. So he says, so I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God does abide in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So he goes through that little rendition. It almost sounds like a a reopening to the whole book of 1 John. But in fact, what he's doing is he's refuting this idea that only some people get it. And he's saying, no, I'm writing to you and to you and to you and to you and to you, and you all have it. You all have truth. You all have faith. You all have the Holy Spirit within you. And he affirms that, that they all have gotten it. And it has nothing to do with rising to enlightenment. So that's a really good example of what, in reality, that kind of teaching can lead to because First John had to be written to refute it. To say, no, 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 you don't, you don't arrive to enlightenment. Everybody receives this, this um, enlightenment through faith. All right, so uh, we see then he's, he's fighting against or, or speaking against, but he's not doing it in an aggressive manner, is he? How does he approach them? The first thing we see about a technique here is, number one, he's what? Yeah, he is polite, is he not? He doesn't just, he's not aggressive, he's not deliberately confrontational. Not deliberate. I say deliberately, because it could be confrontational. Yeah, but he's not being deliberately confrontational. And would you say that sometimes when people have talked with you, and even in your past as you were coming into your faith, where you did feel like some people were just being aggressive against you, just because they were trying to beat it into you instead of lead you into it? There's a huge difference in those two things. And so Paul is very carefully not to be confrontational, but yet he doesn't compromise truth either, does he? So, but he is polite. He makes, an, he makes an observation, which is true. He looks around. He sees that they're very religious, that there's a lot of symbols of religion all around them, and that, that somehow they seem to be searching, right? Um, so he's polite, and he's not deliberately confrontational. The second thing he does is he finds some kind of a basis for conversation that they're going to identify with, right? He's looking for a spiritual need, that they will readily see and admit to, correct? So what does he find that is his platform that he starts to bounce off of? The unknown God altar, right? Look, I see you even have an altar to an unknown God. So we see a, he finds a basis. Huh? Well, you know, to me, to me, this is a skillful thing. I don't know, how many of you guys have ever had a friend who's really, really a gifted evangelist? Have you ever had a friend and, and been present with them and you're watching them do their thing? I have. I, I remember in Tur- Turkey, one of my friends, Susanna Omach, who was married to a Turkish believer. And she was a very, very strong, highly 
passionate Christian. And I would go shopping with her, and I'm not kidding, we would walk into, of course she spoke Turkish, because her husband was Turkish, um, and I was totally clueless, but she would use English when she was with me, and with them as well, and because she was blonde-haired and blue-eyed, it was obvious she was an American, so she used that to her advantage. She didn't let on about her knowing a whole lot of Turkish, and she didn't let on to the fact that she was married to a Turkish man because that would have changed their feeling toward her and their willingness to listen to this American woman. Right. So she used that to her advantage, but she would walk in and she would start a conversation. Well, how are you today? And, oh, this is very lovely. And, I, and she was just really one of those syrupy kind of people. You know, she was really, I always call them syrupy, but she was super, super sticky sweet, you know. And I loved her. But, <laughs> but she, was, she would lay it on, you know. To, again, to, well, I wouldn't call it manipulate, but it was a tactic of evangelism that endears the people that you're talking to to you so that they will love you and listen to you because they're, they're intrigued by you. Charismatic might be another way of saying it. But also, she was stealth. That girl was skilled. And it reminded me of what I saw with, with Paul here. I went, whoa, that is, a, that is something that is truly supernaturally endowed. And for us to not you know, rely on that to some degree would be false. However, all of us to some degree can analyze it and try to engage in it in that way. And when it's God's um, design for you to be in that conversation, he will also empower you supernaturally to give you the right words, to give you the right insights. Because I cannot believe that Paul went into to Athens, looked around and saw all this idolatry and, and was grieved in his spirit by it, that he just all of himself knew what to say and what to do. This is so supernaturally laid out in here. You know it was the Lord leading him, right? So he finds a basis for conversation. There you go. Yes, exactly. So in every single instance that we looked at in each of those Acts accounts, we made a comparison. And what I'm trying to do with this now is analyze his evangelism technique. We see he's polite, not deliberately confrontational, right? So he starts out by flattering them a little, like my friend Susanna would do. Oh, this is, these scarves are so lovely. Are these this or that? I mean, she knew enough that she knew what to do. And then she, said, then she finds a basis for conversation. My friend Susanna said to a man, oh, what is your name? And he gave her his name, and she says, oh, do you know what that name means? And then she went right into the gospel. Uh-huh. <laughs> I went, whoa, how did you do that? <laughs> Yeah. Yes. And what Paul does too in this, another thing, another little technique we see in here is who does he start quoting? He quotes their currently understood and known poets. And by the way, these poets that he quoted, how did their, this audience feel about those poets? They were good with it, right? They're going, oh, yeah, 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 we know. But because why? 
we're so smart. We're so, we're so intelligent and we know a lot of things and we've investigated many, many things. And this poet, he really, he had it going. He knew what he was doing. It's kind of like people who read books and go, well, you know what the author was thinking here, don't you? Right? And they go on to proceed to tell you so. And I saw an interview one time with an author who said, yeah, I've heard people talk about my books before and they, and they theorize about the hole in the ground that I fictitiously made up that this child encounters and, and he makes a little children's story of. He said... It was just a hole. <laughs> but all these people who have analyzed his writing have theorized the psychological thinking behind it. And he's like, no, it was just a hole. <laughs> I love it. So in this case, what we see then, uh, one of his other techniques is that he seeks uh, to use their own stated beliefs, right? to springboard off of that. Things that, that are common, a truth that can apply to God or Jesus, which they are already on board with. Things that they understand and they, and they know. So um, let's do this. Seeks to use their own um, stated beliefs. Because once you catch a person saying, well, I believe this, and you're going, oh, that's true, but now if you just apply that to God, you'd actually have it, right? So he finds out what it is they actually believed. He quotes the poet. He starts with the poet in this case. When um, Peter is preaching to the Jews, who does he quote? David and the Psalms, right? So what you see then is in both cases, when you made your comparison, they both found the common ground that we've already got a belief system that we agree on about these points. And when you're speaking to the Jew, you use the Jewish scriptures, right? But when you're speaking to the Greeks, you use their poets. And that's what he did. So he seeks to use their own stated beliefs or agreed, or agreed faith statements, right? And he used that to springboard for them. Did anybody come up with a list like this? Did you do anything along these lines on your homework on day four? If you didn't, you missed out on a great opportunity to see these things for yourself. It was, it was really fun. So then what does he, he do? Then he attempts to apply them. Okay, so I like Peter. I'm going to put on here. Peter, he used uh, the prophets. And Paul, he quoted these known poet. That's the one that's in, in here where he says, your own poets speak of this. Um, verse 28, yeah, okay. Yeah, for in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said. 
for we also are his children. Now, that's really cool about that because they have a belief that that's true, right? And so then what does he do? How does he, how does he take that, that statement that, that if their belief and understanding is that God has children and that we all are God's children, then what does he pull them back around then to say? Therefore, God is not an idol, and what should they not be doing then? Trying to supersede God with their own, as if they are either equal to God or above God, because if they're God's children, then they should be subordinate to the God, not the other way around. And these people seem to be wanting to flip it and make themselves either above or equal to the God that they say birthed them. Is that a possibility? I mean, is it logically possible? And the answer is no. And because these men were logic thinkers, they were, they were always debating and reasoning things through, and they would take things to a logical conclusion. So he's saying, now, wait a minute. If you understand God of your world, whatever he is, is the father of you, then how can you say then that you become equal to or above your own God? Who birthed you? So he uses their own logic against them. So he reasons it through. He attempts to apply their resources to faith truths, tra- faith truths, and then he brings them through those facts or points of truth uh, to true wisdom about God, right? Applying t- apply them to God or Jesus, who is the creator of all, the author of life, and the one who is the only savior of mankind. Um, he, he, he skillfully turns it back against them, basically. Uses their own stated beliefs to bring them logically to a consideration that they had never gotten to before, which is that, okay, if there is a God of the universe and he created all of us, then shouldn't we be worshiping him, not the other way around? Romans talks about it from the perspective that there are those who have gotten to the place in their uh, their denial that they're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Right? And that's a logic that, that he's taking them to, but through a slightly different measure. He uses their own poets who say that there is a God who created things, and they agreed with that. Well, yeah, because they were familiar with him. So we're going to say on he, he reasons to truth again, to get them to, to see truth or admit truth, correct? And I have a full detail on my chart when you get my chart. I'm just really scrunching it down here. Um, And then what does he do after that? After he reasons them through and he makes a challenge about what they have been believing and tries to bring them around to a new thinking on it, then what does he ask of them? He asks them to repent. So he presents a statement and he asks for repentance. And what is the repentance from? Yeah, from their former thinking, and, and which is sin, exactly. Yeah, their ignorance. From their former thinking and their sin. She said to them, well, look, you've got to repent of that. If, if that's what you believe and you say you do, I'm tell- here to tell you there is a God of the universe, and he created all things, and he is the Savior of the world, and um, he is above all things, right? He, he, he is the creator. And if he's your creator and he's your father, which your own poets have said, that God is the creator and the father, then 
How can you supersede that him or become equal to him if he's the father, right? You have to be subordinate to that. So he. Yeah. Exactly from their former thinking, repent and turn, and then and he and he and in doing so he takes them to a place of understanding that what they had been believing would be sin because it was wrong, right? All right. Then what does he do at the end of it? Once he's done giving them his his spiel. There you go. He says, look, there's a day coming when you're going to have to give account for this, for this life and for the things that you believed. So he warns them, doesn't he, about coming judgment? What did Peter do when he gave his presentation earlier? Did he do the same thing? Did he, once he went through their whole history of Israel and all the things that God had, had done and how he had fulfilled the prophets and what the prophets had said about him, and then he says, and... and and least you be judged, he said, don't forget what was written about in the prophets here. And he talks about Babylon without mentioning Babylon. But what happened to Babylon, which was they came in and judged the unbelievers and the unrepentant, right? So again, he gives a warning. He warns about unbelief, about the consequences of it. So then, in conclusion, then, what, what are you able to do when you step back from that? You're able to say what? Will they all believe because he did it so skillfully? No. Now, you have to know as an evangelist that how many come in? Okay, all who have been appointed. And when you look at the words, the descriptive words in these accounts that we've seen so far with Paul, would you say that most people get saved or just some? Some. Just some. Keep that in mind as an evangelist, that that those who come into faith are going to be smaller than those who are going to reject. You're going to have probably more rejection than you're going to have acceptance. Okay? I wish we could all be Billy Grahams, fill (laughs) fill an auditorium and win them all. Wouldn't that be nice? But we, but we don't all uh, have that s- significant of a ministry calling that God, God gave him. But what we have to know is that they're going to come with, with the defeats. There's going to be persecution. Sometimes they're going to literally chase you out of town, so to speak. Sometimes they're going to beat you and throw you in jail, <laughs> so to speak. Obviously, we'd, hopefully that's not actually going to happen. Um, but there's going to be people that are going to really hate the message that you're giving. One thing that we did not get to cover, which is the, the, the known doctrine, I think I'm just, I'll just skip it. We'll just won't do it at all. But it, it was going to be a, a discussion about... Um, that repentance being a foundation for the gospel message. And it is so essential that we understand that taking a person into faith requires that they repent, right? That they turn from what they had been believing and doing and how they have been living to a true belief which is demonstrated by their life. And I want to read one thing to you just in closing here because I think it's important. Repentance is a foundational doctrine of salvation and is required in order to receive God's salvation. This fact, 
that it's required does not mean God's grace is earned by doing so. And I've heard people use that as a challenge to me. Well, then you're just saying that you have to earn it. I'm going, no. Admitting sin and desiring to turn from it is not a work. It is a conviction of the heart and a confession with your mouth. That's all it is. If it's true, if it's a true conviction in your heart and it's a true repentance, right, and a true confession, then God knows, by the way, that's mentioned to us in Acts 15.8, that God knows the heart. He'll examine that. If it's true, he will give you your spirit to the one that's truly repentant. The Holy Spirit then will empower and propel the believer into a life of successful sanctification and obedience. You don't get obedient and then get saved. You believe it, you confess it, you desire to turn from it, and you're confessing that God is true and that what his word has said is true. Those are not works. Those are attitudes of the heart and mind, which, by the way, unaccompanied then by empowerment by the Spirit are, are unfruitful in your life. You might say you believe all you want, but if you haven't really received the Spirit, you'll, you'll fall on your face eventually. Without the Holy Spirit, holy living is impossible. Man's own efforts always and eventually end in failure. However, although saved, you are still flawed in this body of flesh. So momentary acts of sin can creep in occasionally. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit will also convict you and turn you back to right, the right ways of God. He will help you to recognize your sin and, and turn you. And you'll want to because the I want to was already there. And now with the Spirit dwelling in you, he keeps reminding you when, when you're not doing it his way. Right, So your desire to please God will be honored by God who longs to be glorified in your life. It is an amazing thing. He brings you to faith. He gives it to you by grace and then he empowers you to live it. But it starts with a repentant heart, a desire to want to, to follow God and believe in God. So belief and a desire to be obedient are the two things which must take place in the heart for salvation. That's called, that's called repentance, and it's absolutely essential. Which means then, if a person says they're saved, but there's no transformation in their life, you can probably be pretty sure there's not been really a true repentance in their heart. They never really wanted to follow God or believed God. They came to God under other circumstances, which probably then... They do not have the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not trying to judge people. I'm just trying to give you some clear doctrinal um, understandings that repentance is a requirement, and you should see a transformed life. And for you and I personally, what does that mean? We need to be examining ourselves to say, do I have a transformed life? Is my life different than it was before I knew the Lord? And when I do do wrong, when I do sin, do I feel a conviction because that spirit is actually present and, and working in my heart to help me have a life that glorifies him? This reminds me of the poor soil. Yes, it does. Yes, exactly. Back to the seed and the, and the sower again. Yes, that's Diane's favorite. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you, guys. I hope this was a fun week for you. It was for me. I, I really enjoyed this one.